Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of baptism, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous few broadcasts, I have been giving a general historical description of the subject of baptism, and the most important points to be aware of concerning the historical perspective of baptism is, first of all, the fact that it did not start with John the Baptist. This is the most important thing to understand concerning the subject of baptism, is that it did not start with John the Baptist. Baptism started with the Pharisees. The Pharisees created the doctrine of baptism as a means of converting a Gentile to Judaism. The conversion process had three parts to it. The first part of converting from being a Gentile to being a Jew, the first part was to be circumcised, if applicable, of course. The second part was to devote yourself to living in obedience to the Mosaic law, as was defined by the Pharisees. And then the third part was to be baptized through ritual immersion. Someone would supervise you to ensure that it was done correctly, and this person would also be a witness in the event that there was ever any question concerning your Jewish identity. In addition to this, I explained in the previous program the gospel. I gave a complete explanation of what the gospel is from the point of view of what was the bad news, what was the problem, and what is the good news, what is the solution that will actually solve that problem. And so in this program, I would like to proceed a little bit and deal with some of the details. In the previous programs, I gave an overview. In this program, I would like to address some details that I skipped over in the previous programs just to try to answer some common questions that usually come up when it comes to this subject. The first thing I would like to address is the baptism of repentance. When John presented his baptism, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. This was described in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He described his baptism as a baptism of repentance. Now, people understood baptism already. When John the Baptist came on the scene, people had an understanding of baptism. And what it meant to the people was a baptism of repentance from being a Gentile to becoming a Jew. It was a baptism of repentance in the sense of conversion. It was also a baptism in the sense of dedication, that a person would dedicate their lives to living in obedience to the Mosaic law. That was a form of repentance. When John presented his baptism of repentance was an act of repentance. People knew that already. But what was unique about John's baptism was that he was baptizing Jews. He was encouraging Jews to repent. That was what made his baptism unique. The baptism of the Pharisees was also a baptism of repentance. But it was a baptism of repentance for Gentiles. John presented his baptism on the Jordan River as a baptism of repentance for the Jews. 
That was what made his baptism unique. That was what made his baptism new, because up to this point, there was no baptism for the Jews, a baptism of repentance, because according to Pharisaical theology, if you were already Jewish, there was no real need for you to repent, because if you were Jewish, then you would already have a place in the kingdom of heaven because you were a child of Abraham. And so to suggest that a Jew would have to repent, especially in light of the coming of the kingdom of God, that was a whole new perspective. That was a whole new idea. And when John presented this, it was in direct opposition to the beliefs of the Pharisees. It was contrary. It was contradictory. It did not fit. It could not be harmonized. This was so different that there was no way to reconcile the beliefs of the Pharisees with this belief that John was presenting that the Jew was just as unclean as the Gentile. This was a whole new concept, a whole new perspective, a paradigm shift that had never been encountered before. This was a big deal. So when John presented his baptism as a baptism of repentance, what did this mean? Well, this meant that people needed to repent from their sins and obey the law. And he gave examples of that. When he presented his baptism of repentance, people asked him, well, then what do we do? And he spoke about tax collectors not collecting more than what they were required. He spoke of soldiers being honest and not taking money from people and to be content with their wages. He spoke about sharing things that you had with your neighbor if you had an abundance of something. He spoke about the law. He told people to repent from their sins and turn back to the law, turn back to the old covenant, which was appropriate because the old covenant was the covenant that was in effect when Jesus came to present his ministry. He encouraged people also to repent, to obey, to live in obedience to the commandments of Moses. That was his ministry. Now, I have explained the reason for this in many programs that I've done previously. For example, the work I did on spiritual warfare is actually a study on the differences between law and grace as it relates to the warfare between God and Satan. But in that series and in many other places, I have explained that the reason why the law was given by our God to us, the reason why he gave it and the reason why he encourages us to live in obedience to it and to pursue it is not because we can do it, but so that he can show us that we cannot do it. He gave us the law. He gave us the commandments. He gave us the old covenant to lead us to the point of total absolute desperation through our repeated failures so that we would eventually come to the point of recognizing that we have absolutely no hope outside of his grace and mercy. That was the purpose for the law. That was the purpose for the call to repentance. So John the Baptist was just simply calling them back to what they should have already been participating in. When Jesus presented his ministry, he presented his ministry in the exact same context because the new covenant did not go into effect until after he died. That was when the new covenant went into effect, which was based on what our God has done for us, not like the old covenant, which is based on what you will do for your God, which of course means nothing because you will never live in obedience to the commandments. But that's the point. It's to lead you to the point of despair so that you can be the recipient of the free gift of eternal life. You can be the recipient of his grace and mercy. So John's baptism of repentance 
was important in that context to give the Jews an opportunity to rededicate their lives. That's the Christian term we use today in a similar context where the Jews at this point would rededicate, they would recommit, they would say, I'm going to do it now, this time I'm going to really do it. It was a way of saying that they were going to now devote themselves to living in obedience to the commandments of God. That is what John was calling people to in the context of a baptism of repentance. Now, John made the point many times, several times, he made the point that he was baptizing with water, but Jesus, the Messiah, was going to baptize with either the Holy Spirit or with fire. Some translations say the Holy Spirit and with fire, but it's an either or, it's one or the other. The Holy Spirit is salvation, fire is eternal condemnation. That is the difference between the two. But John said that Jesus would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is a different baptism, a different baptism than what John was presenting. John was presenting a baptism to recommit and rededicate a person's life to the Old Covenant. The baptism of the Holy Spirit had to do with the regeneration and the recreation of an individual to resurrect an individual from the dead according to the New Covenant. And that is done by the Holy Spirit, not by any water that is here on earth. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 to 15, John says something else in response to seeing Jesus approaching him. In Matthew, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, of course, he needed to be baptized by Jesus, but what he was referring to was not the baptism in water. He didn't expect Jesus to then dunk John in the water and help him get back up out of the water to do so in a supervisory way in order to ensure that he did it correctly and also to bear witness in the event that anyone ever had any question about what John had done or had not done. That's not what he was saying. He was talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that he needed to be resurrected through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referring to. But in verse 15, Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Now again, the importance here is to understand that Jesus is going to be baptized and that this has meaning to the people. In the previous programs, I explained that the importance here to the people of Jesus' baptism is not the fact that he was baptized, but the fact that they would look at him differently. They would see him differently because of what he did. What he did did nothing to change him. What he did did nothing to change his divinity or his humanity or anything like that whatsoever. It had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with his faith. It had nothing to do with his salvation. He didn't need any salvation. He was the one who presents it, who gives it freely. It had nothing to do with that at all. From the people's point of view, though, because most of them were not willing to accept him for who he was, from the people's point of view, 
this would be an act done by just another Jew, like any other Jew, and this Jew, Jesus, would then be rededicated. He would be recommitted. He would be an individual who could now start fresh, start a new life, and there would never be any consideration with regards to his life previously. This is a very important point, and I wanted to mention it again because I want you to understand that there are a lot of people out there who are very concerned about the years before Jesus started his ministry, and they're wondering, what did he do before then, and what happened before then? Did he sin before then when somebody wasn't looking, or something like that? Well, that may be important to the people today who want to argue or who want to reject Jesus for who he truly is and are just simply looking for an excuse. But back then, during the time of his ministry, to the people who he went to, to the people who he spoke to, to the people who he ministered to, they did not care. It was not their concern. So while it may be your concern, that's your problem. But from their point of view, from the point of view of the people who Jesus was reaching out to in order to validate his messianic claims, those people had no interest in his life previously because of this baptism. According to their theology, according to their beliefs, there would be no concern with regards to his life previously, only from this day forward which was when he began his public ministry and when he was evaluated by the people to ensure that he was sinless or without blemish. Now, of course, that would depend on a person's point of view. The Pharisees called him a sinner quite often, and so it depends on who you ask. But my point is is that regardless of what happened in his life previously, no one in the land of Israel would have had any concern for it. And while many people have a concern for it today, I would say that their concerns are just simply not that important because the fulfillment of prophecy, because the establishment of the new covenant has already been accomplished. This has already been done to the satisfaction of the living God. And so while it may not be done according to your opinion, according to your requirements, so that you personally can be satisfied, Regardless of that, it has already been accomplished, and if you want to talk with the Lord about this when you see him, then I'm sure he will accommodate you for a short time before he explains to you that he doesn't care, that it is not his concern, that he is the one who has established all things, and you either believe or you do not believe. You either accept or you reject, but there is no negotiation. There is only surrendering. You must surrender to what the Lord our God has already done. That is the bottom line. Now, the other thing that he said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, is that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this is a very creative word to use, the word fitting, because it's not the word required. It is not the word necessary. This is an important point. Many people will ask me about this and ask me, what does this mean to be fitting? And the answer is, is that there is no requirement, that there is no law, that there is no necessity. Instead, that this can fit in the category of something metaphorical, although I hate to use that word, especially in this context. But I think it is a word that people can appreciate to understand that there is no necessity here that it is something that is fitting. Now, instead of focusing on the notion of fitting, though, I think it's appropriate to focus on the word righteousness, that there is a righteousness that is being fulfilled. I personally think that that is the most important part of what he has said. Fitting, yes, it has its importance, but only to say that this is not necessary, that this is just simply something that fits. 
Instead, though, I'd like to focus on this notion of fulfill all righteousness. Now, first of all, righteousness is something that is defined as having a right standing before your God, being blameless, being sinless in effect. Righteousness is something that only our God has, and he is the only one who can declare someone else to be righteous. And the reason why he is the only one who can declare someone to be righteous is because no one can be righteous by what they do or what they don't do. They can only be identified as righteous because the Lord our God says so. That's it. That's all that we have to go on. Now, we do have some examples. Probably the most popular example is Abraham when he was declared to be righteous. Why? Because he believed in our God, because he believed what the Lord said. Now, of course, there is some contention with regards to when his righteousness was actually obtained. James suggested that Abraham's righteousness was obtained when he performed a work afterwards, that it was only then that it was fulfilled. On the other hand, Paul says that his righteousness was obtained when he believed, not because of the work that he performed afterwards. And so there are some disagreements concerning this issue. But what I would like to say concerning this is that if anyone is going to be righteous, it's only going to be because God says so, and not for any other reason at all. There is no other potential reason because there is no possible way that a person can accomplish that. So when Jesus says, fulfill all righteousness, I'm going to look at this from a different point of view. And that is that our God declared Jesus to be righteous. That's one way to look at this. Not because he was baptized, but because of who he is. And that this act before the people was a way that the people could look at him in a new way and say, because of what he has done, he is righteous. But that is not an endorsement by God. That is only a fitting way so that there can be a fit between the people and the divine. Whereas both will confess at this moment that righteousness exists. God says righteousness exists because he says so. The people say righteousness exists because they did something that they believe would establish Jesus' righteousness from this day forward, unless he sins again, of course. But the point is, is that this is a fitting. This is a way of fitting. Now, the fulfillment, the fulfillment, I believe, comes in the context of belief. Just as Abraham believed, and because of that, he was declared to be righteous, So also, because the people will then believe in Jesus, righteousness is experienced once again. The Holy Spirit was described by the Lord Jesus as one who would come. This is found in the Gospel of John. One who would come to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. Why? Because they do not believe in him. John testifies that he is the Messiah He is the one who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit or with fire, whichever you prefer, that he is the one. Through his testimony, people can believe or they cannot believe. Righteousness is fulfilled in the context that people will now believe on the basis of the testimony of John or not. That, to me, is an expression of righteousness being fulfilled because through the testimony of John, People can believe. In fact, Jesus confronted people throughout his ministry with regards to the testimony of John. Where did John come from? Was he from heaven or was he from men? Was his message from heaven or was it from men? Was his message of God or was it not? And the Pharisees responded by saying, we do not know because they did not want to concede that the testimony of John was true 
If they did, then Jesus would have responded and asked them, well, then why did you not believe him? That's the point. People must believe the testimony of John. If they do, then righteousness is fulfilled by their belief in the testimony of John about Jesus being the Messiah. That is the fulfillment of righteousness that I believe he's referring to. And that there is a fitting because of the perspective of both the people, which is one thing, and the divine living God, which is another, that fits together in a harmonious way in this brief moment in time before he begins his ministry. To me, righteousness in that way has been fulfilled. Another important detail that I wanted to refer to in this program, considering that I have a few more minutes, I'd like to address this, and that is that people will sometimes look at baptism today in a different way than people looked at baptism back then. And this is a serious problem, because without looking at the subject of baptism from the point of view of the people back then, you can create whatever you want. You can create anything that you want to create concerning how it was fulfilling or how it was fitting or what it meant in terms of obtaining righteousness. We can create anything. Anything that you can come up with out of your own personal imagination can be presented and brought forward as if it is fact. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is a truth concerning these issues, and it has to do with its proper historical and cultural context. One example concerning this is when people speak about baptism as if it is a replacement for circumcision. Perhaps you've heard of this before. That baptism is very important because we no longer perform circumcision. So now we perform baptism. That baptism is effectively a replacement for circumcision. And there are many people who will find this appealing because it gives them something to do. You know, in the Old Covenant, you could do something. Now in the New Covenant, wouldn't it be nice to do something too? I have a serious problem with this because, again, I believe that the New Covenant is based on what our God has done for us, not what we think we are going to do for our God. But there are many people who don't share this belief, who believe other things, and this is one of the ways that people express their unbelief in the sense that they do not believe that this is only about what our God has done for us. Many people reject that notion, and this is an opportunity for them to support their own fantasy, their own beliefs that are not real, that are not based on anything real. To say that baptism is a replacement for circumcision is, first and foremost, it is an expression of ignorance to me. The reason why I say that is because of what I explained earlier about the origination of baptism, its purpose, its place. It was one of the three steps that a person would go through in order to properly convert to Judaism. First you have circumcision, then you have dedication to the Mosaic Law, then you have baptism. So to say that baptism is a replacement for circumcision from a Jewish point of view, from a Pharisaical point of view, from the point of view of the people when the New Testament was written, to say that it is a replacement is insanity. It is not a replacement. It is part of the conversion process. It is not replacing something. It is a part of a whole you don't replace one thing with something else when they are collectively used for the same purpose. No, it is not a replacement. Instead, the proper way to say this would be to say that since circumcision is no longer a part of the conversion process, baptism is all that remains besides dedication to the Mosaic Law. You could say it that way if you wanted to in order to express that. I don't believe that that is true, though. I do not believe that. 
I believe that baptism fits in the same category as circumcision in the context of repentance and conversion, that they are part of the same thing. It is not to say that one is a replacement for the other. They are not replacements. They work together. They are together involved in the conversion of an individual. So what people are stating today is a new, modern theology that has no historical basis whatsoever has no historical foundation. In fact, to me, to suggest that baptism is a replacement for circumcision, to me, is just a statement. It is an expression. It's a way of somebody saying that they did not know the relationship between circumcision and baptism, that there was a cohesive relationship that they worked together. One did not replace the other. They were used together for a singular purpose. So that is why I would not say that baptism is a replacement for circumcision. And I wanted to mention this in this program because it is something that is very difficult to understand unless you know the historical baptism and how it relates to circumcision. So I wanted to take the opportunity in this program to explain this. Now, the reason why I believe a lot of people hang on to baptism, even in this context, even if they are informed about this, is because the end result is technically the same. The end result is that people are wanting to live a life of repentance and obedience. For a person to convert to Judaism in the first century, they were converting to a life of repentance and obedience according to the Mosaic Law. For people to convert to Christianity today, they are still devoting themselves to a life of repentance and obedience to the Mosaic Law. And while it definitely is not exactly the same, it is similar enough that it fits with most people's theology. It is my belief, however, that according to the scriptures, there is a new person, whereas we are not trying to convert Gentiles to the way of life of the Jews, and also we are not trying to convert the Jews to be set free from the law of Moses so that they can be like Gentiles. Instead, there is a new person in Christ Jesus, whereas the Jew and the Gentile are both converted to the true and living God according to the new covenant, according to the new life that we now live in, which is a life based on living out of the abundance of what our God has given to us, out of what he has done for us, not a life of what we think we are going to do for him. But it's very difficult to enter into that until after you let go of the bondage of religion. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,